Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Today, we have... James Rhodes, the classical pi- concert pianist. Oh, please, M- musician and writer. That musician and writer. Um, I play the piano. You play the piano rather fabulously. <laughs> Thank you. A lot better than I do. I can't even play chopsticks. <laughs> All right, so, fair enough. But you're not charging people for tickets, are no, you? No, I'm so, not. Fair no. enough. But you are a marvellous pianist and also a writer. Your first book, Instrumental. When did that come out? 2015? Yeah, it was meant to come out in 2014, but uh, there were a few legal issues. There was, we'll talk about those in a bit. There were a few legal issues. And your next book, Fire on All Sides, yes. it will be out by the time that this podcast goes out. Yay, so it's out now. So we start each. Mad World podcast with a question, quite a simple question that people often don't answer honestly, but I feel that you won't have any problem answering it honestly because I feel you're that kind of person. I don't have much of a filter, so no, which is see. brilliant. Okay. Neither do I. So hold on tight, guys. <laughs> <laughs> you're in for an exciting half an hour, 45 minutes, hour, how long it is. How are you today, James? How am I today? Like, really, honestly, truthfully. I'm super tired because I, I had two hours sleep last night. Sleeping is not my strong point. Mm-hmm. I feel quite emotional because I've been doing talks about quite personal things. Mm-hmm. And so that comes with a certain degree of shame and exposure. Um, kind of angry. I'm kind of all over the place. I'm up and down. I'm a bit wired on caffeine. Um, I'm also about six weeks off nicotine. <gasps> I know. Don't even get me started. Well I w- done. Yeah, I mean, I am touring so much and I need to be strong and able to deal with the jet lag and the travel and smoking. I mean, it just destroys me, which is fine if I'm on my own just wanting to die at home. But I've got contractual engagements and shit I have to do. So I figured now is, you know, finally having been smoking since before the age of 10. I mean, I was in single digits when I started. I'm now 42. It's time to stop. So that's like, this is just me personally asking because I smoke like a fucking chimney. Mm. It's great, isn't it? It is great. And also, it's the last thing I have. Now I can't drink or take drugs. (laughs) Well, you'd be surprised. That's not true. It's not the last thing you have. You also have sugar. Sex. And you have sex. Well, there we go. I was going to say that, but you beat me to it. Um, (laughs) And you have caffeine and you have spending and shopping and everything to change the way we feel. Because that's what we do. Caffeine goes hand in hand with nicotine for me. Everything goes hand in hand with nicotine. Let's be honest. (laughs) But I just, you know, look, it may not last. How have you done, How have you kind of tried? It's a very strange story. I uh, I don't want to say too much about it other than I was a crazy Israeli guy in Bogota on November the 23rd at 9 a.m. in the morning. 
and I closed my eyes for 17 minutes. I'm not quite sure what he did, but ever since then, I haven't wanted to smoke. That is... It's fucked up, right? You I mean, don't that's wanna, like, can you give me a... No, because it's just too weird. I want to wait and see if it takes. If in three months I'm still like, yep, this is fine, the thought of putting a cigarette in my mouth makes me want to puke, then I'll tell the whole world about it because it was okay. a mir- and miracle. And it's and the best 450 quid I've ever spent. Really? Yes, ma'am. Amazing. If it works. Let's see. So your first book, Instrumental, you touched on this briefly. It detailed your pretty fucking awful childhood, frankly. Well, most of us, I would say, have had pretty fucking awful childhoods, if we're honest. I don't think you can quantify trauma. Instrumental is a book about classical music, child rape, suicide and and mental illness. So, you you know, you're not going to find it in Tesco and it's not it's not in the comedy section. Um, You say it's in the comedy section as a joke. Well, look, I mean, it's not it's kind of publishing herpes, isn't it? Classical music and child rape. Like, who the fuck wants to read that? But apparently people did. Lots of people did want to read it. The problem is it was almost banned. and, and, And not only was the book banned, but they wanted a gagging order that would stop me from speaking or writing in any medium anywhere in the world indefinitely about almost any aspect of my past, which includes things like the treatment of mental illness. Yeah. So just to give you an idea of the breadth of that, the horror of it, if they had won and I had tweeted something as innocuous as I'm going to see my shrink today, I could have gone to prison because that's talking about the treatment of mental illness. And I would have been in contempt and in violation. And it was $2 million in legal fees. We won in the high court. We lost in the court of appeal. Then the Supreme Court intervened and overruled it and changed the law. And it's now called the Rhodes case. Wow. <laughs> it's being taught in legal schools. And it's I fucking me, some schmuck from North London who plays the piano. But it was bought by your ex-wife. Yes, on the erroneous... I mean, look, I... I even though it had been 10 years or something since we divorced, the reasoning she brought was that by publishing the book, I intentionally wanted to inflict psychological harm on my own child, even though she accepted he wouldn't read it, but that he might see extracts on the internet. He was 12 at the time. Uh, yes, something like that, which is insane because it's not a children's book. Also, he lives the other side of the world where we'd had no plans to publish it at that time, and kids don't want to read autobiographies of concert pianists (laughs) but also the most upsetting thing uh, well there's lots of upsetting things but your childhood so you were raped by your PE teacher yes at a North London nice posh North London London prep school but for years for for four years years it went on so you were silenced by someone in a position of power and then a few years later exactly the same Same. thing happened in a court of law with judges if you can believe and lawyers the things that came out of your mouth that at the time there were such strict secrecy laws it was all anonymised I couldn't even hint at the fact there were legal problems Otherwise, I would have been in contempt of court and mm-hmm. gone to prison. The whole thing was in secret. But they were, saying, they were comparing me to a husband knowingly infecting his wife with AIDS for writing stuff like this. The lawyer would read out a police evidence statement that I gave about being raped at six years old in this kind of mocking, sing-song voice and say things like, this is the kind of toxic material Mr. Rhodes wants to fling out to make a quick buck. And I mean, it's just, it defies belief. That in 2014, it got that far, and which is why it had a lot of press at the time, and they changed the law as a result, and the Supreme Court quite rightly said, what the fuck, this should never have got this far, and unanimously overturned it and threw it out. But it came at a hell of a price. It took 18 months. Mm. I was out at least £150,000 of my own money. 
I would have gone bankrupt if we'd lost because, you know, who can find a couple of million dollars yeah, in this yeah. day and age? And Just down the back of the safe. You know what I mean? Yeah. So even worse, it's such a personal topic. It's not inciting terrorism. It's no. not libeling people. This is my own story. and It's like the court of law trying to do what mental illness already does pretty fucking well. Stigma, which is, which you is know, shut silence, up, don't talk about it. And that's and the, how it thrives. Of course it does. The minute you shine a light on it. And, you know, the great thing is that we won and the book's come out and it's been such a success in Spain for example that they're sending that book into prisons in Spain to help rehabilitate certain prisoners and it's being taught in universities and given to students in criminology and psychology and I think that it's a good thing to have done it's not a great book but it has quite an important message I think a really important message you've literally changed the law yeah which is kind of weird and it will have helped untold amounts of people it's helped a lot of people and I know that because I've had several thousand messages and emails and letters and, and tweets and whatever from because it doesn't just talk about you know these aren't messages from people who have gone through similar things not all of them yeah um, not all of them have been raped but it talks about self-harm mm-hmm. I get messages from people who say this happened to my father or to my niece or to my ex-wife and now I understand better why they behave the way they do and why I think it's so difficult to get close to mm-hmm. for them to trust and so that was instrumental. There's a movie being made of it now, <laughs> which is going into you, production who, soon. Who's, who's playing you? Um, Kathy Bates, probably. I don't know. Really? No, I don't know. I, we've got a script, and then we get once you get the script, you get the director, and once you get the director, you, you then get, start yeah. casting. And but that's just surreal. And then I wrote a little book called How to Play the Piano because I was so terrified of getting sued. I thought, well, why don't we do something a bit more gentle? (laughs) (laughs) And I wrote a little book that promises anyone with two hands that within six weeks they will be playing a piece of Bach, which I think is a lovely thing to do. Little Bach prelude, two minutes long. You need an electric keyboard or a piano. You need two hands. You need 40 minutes a day. The ability to focus and turn off your fucking phone for 40 minutes. And six weeks later, you're playing a beautiful, immortal 300-year masterpiece, which I think is a lovely, lovely thing to do, as opposed to watching, you know, Celebrity Love Island and eating chicken out of a bucket. I just think it's a nice thing to do. You argue in your new book, Fire on All Sides, you argue that Bach and the great classical musicians kind of created mindfulness. I do, in a way, I think. We tend to think of mindfulness, which, again, I hate that word. It's become such a... uh, Buzzy, trendy... All that shit. And yet, there is something very powerful about, instead of looking outside, about going inside. If I sit alone in my room without my phone, focusing on my breathing, I'm literally ready to open a vein within about 40 seconds. (laughs) Like, I I can't do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Learning an instrument or painting or writing mm-hmm. or art or anything creative has the same effect as that. It goes inside. It's a form of mindfulness. And time disappears. And, you know, another awful word, flow. <laughs> Let's talk about my creative process. But it's that whole thing where time just disappears. And it's magic. And I think we need that more than ever in this day and age mm. where we live at a pace that we just aren't designed to live at. I mean, mm. we're we're all kind of, we're breaking ourselves, aren't we? Mm. We're always on emails with Twitter trolls and Tinder swipes and everything happening at a thousand miles an hour. And you're literally having face-to-face conversations with people while they're on their phone in front oh of you. God. And you just, you don't know what's happened to us. So anything to help us just slow down. And Bach and Beethoven and Brahms, these guys, when it was four o'clock in the morning and they wanted to chuck themselves out the window, they had a manuscript paper and a, and a piano and they found their way through it. And to me, 
that's what anything creative is. It's a way through this brief 80 years of madness that we have to endure before we kick the bucket. You talk about this a lot. Fire on All Sides was was a stage direction from Don, Don Giovanni. Giovanni. It's one of my favourite stage directions. It's so funny because... De Ponte, Lorenzo De Ponte, he wrote the lyrics. He wrote the story for Mozart's opera. He wrote three for Mozart. He did Cosi Fan Tutte, um, Marriage Figure, and Don Giovanni. They're the three greatest operas ever written. Mm-hmm. Argue with me on that. I dare you. See what happens. I'm, not, try. I'm, I'm not going to, but if anyone okay. else would like to Feel write free, in man. and argue and tweet um, James. Write in. <laughs> <laughs> P.O. Box. Two ones. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, and in Don Giovanni, at the high point of the, the Don Giovanni's awful thing, completely without any kind of remorse. And he's finally given the opportunity to redeem himself. And the ghost of someone he killed comes and says, look, you're going to go to hell unless you take responsibility and you vow to change the way you live. And he goes, you know what? Fuck you. Free will is everything. I can Mm -hmm. do what I want. I answer to nobody. If I want to drink and I want to have sex, I want to do what I want. That's what I'm going to do. I mean, to be fair, that's a philosophy and it worked Mm. for him. And Anyway, he doesn't repent, and he gets dragged down to hell. And this is the high point of the opera. The music is insane. It's like Hitchcock. And he's dragged down to hell with these devils attacking him and demons, and everyone's rooted in fear. And De Ponte writes as the stage direction, kind of laconically, (laughs) fire on all sides, earthquake, as he's being dragged down into hell. And to me, actually... It's a pretty accurate description of today. Fire on all sides, earthquake. I feel like that's what my life is a lot of the time. Maybe a lot of our lives. Mm. In a way, fire on all sides, it's a kind of... This book is an SOS. It's a way of saying, I hope people are going to read it and go, you know what, me too. I feel like I wasn't given the rule book. Mm -hmm. I feel that I'm lonely even if I'm surrounded by people. People, I haven't got a fucking clue what to do in relationships. I'm Mm -hmm. faking it at my job and just waiting to be called out as a fraud. You know, it's okay to have a slightly messy life and to feel slightly awkward about things. But we have to own it. And we can't just pretend everything's fine and take 55 selfies until we find the perfect angle and pretend our life is like Instagram curated and perfect because it's not. It's messy and it's ugly and it's also very lovely at times. But I think we should embrace all of it, not just the nice bits. So, you know, your life, like Fire on All Sides, you described as hot and dangerous, and my world is either about to melt or collapse. The book is very much, you're very clear, so it's not who you are, but how you are. Yes, because instrumental is who I am. That's my yeah. memoir. This is not a biography. Mm-hmm. This is much more about how I am. It's ostensibly a tour diary. Ostensibly, yes. I hung it on the back of a tour diary. Um, so there's a lot about music and the uh-huh. pieces I'm playing. When I'm on tour is when things get perhaps slightly dangerous because it's there's jet lag and there's trains and there's unknown pianos and new concert halls loneliness oh my god the three o'clock in the morning wired on adrenaline unable to sleep with a concert the next day and one the night before and it's, it's challenging and that's when things get really really difficult and what looks like the perfect life from the outside as Mm. is so often the case is actually a very challenging time and that doesn't mean poor me look at me pursuing my dream of being a musician which I've always wanted to do since I was a kid and isn't it sad it's it's a wonderful life but it's also very very challenging And, and I would say that most people have that experience those who have been very successful in their jobs and also those who struggle that you know life however it looks like from the outside can be very very difficult what you're so brilliant at getting across, it's so fucking important, you know, when you talk about the Instagram stuff, 
I try and only put on Instagram pictures of me looking like a fucking wreck. <laughs> People seem to respond to that. When you said it can be difficult and that's when things start to get dangerous, mm. what does danger look like to you? I know you've battled drug addiction, alcoholism, no, ultimately it's OCD. Sui- ultimately it's suicide. I'm under no illusion that I can drink again safely or do drugs. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't had a drink or a drug in over 20 years because I, I know I'll die, I mean, instantly if I do that. So it would be... It would be suicide. I mean, they're also uh, self-harm is something I think we need to... Talk about more. I really do. We tend to think it's, you know, anorexic teenage girls who do it. And my experience is, it's, it's it, yes, of course it is, but it's also millionaire city workers mm. and grandparents, and, and there are multiple forms of self-harm. And you? For me, it was cutting razor blades, and it, it, was, it was the hardest addiction to kick because it is incredibly addictive. Talk me through that addictive process. Well, it's, it's misunderstood. It's not about suicidal ideation. It's uh-huh. not about suicide. It's really not. It's a coping strategy. It's a way of releasing pain. It's a way of releasing endorphins. It's something that you can control. You can do it in secret. There's a certain ritualistic element mm-hmm. to it. You have to be quite careful. There have been a number of times where I've got it wrong and had to go and get stitched up, and that involves awkward questions and what I would say is that if you know someone who is doing that whether you're a parent or it's a friend or Mm -hmm. whoever it's not a kind of oh my god they want to kill themselves and the worst thing to do I would say is you can't do that so when was the last time you self-harmed about six years ago okay and so So a while away but it's been I mean there have been times when I've really 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 considered doing it again especially over the court case anyone listening who may be stuck in that cycle how did you kind of get out of it eventually the same way i got out of everything else that was not particularly healthy long term which it sounds very trite but is talking about it Mm -hmm. with the right person and that's that's the key thing i can't tell you how many psychiatrists and shrinks i've been through the amount of medication i've been on and i mean some of it i guess was successful some of it was catastrophic every single person will have a different reaction to it the dosages are so hit and miss i was put on a medication i think it was i can't remember the name of it for self-harming you know when you self-harm the brain releases endorphins and Mm -hmm. what this does is it stops the brain releasing endorphins so so it actually really 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 fucking hurts when you do it and i'd forgotten that i was taking these meds and anyway that didn't stop me by talking i found a great psychiatrist and he was honest with me for the first time in my life. I'll never forget. I sat down in front of him and he looked at me and he just said, we both know it's 50-50 if you'll still be here in a year. So let's see if we can do something to slightly improve those odds. And I suddenly relaxed. I thought, fuck, he understands. You know, he didn't say what they usually say, which is, don't worry, everything's going to be okay and we're going to give you lots of meds and we're going to keep you safe. He was like, look, you might not make it. Most people in your situation, actually, you know what, they probably wouldn't. So I felt like he heard me, and and then I got referred to some shrinks, and it took some time to find the right one. Often family is the worst possible people to talk to. Close friends can help. Mm. Um, forums anonymously online can help. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are lots of little tricks people talk about, putting elastic bands around your wrists and putting, or, or using ice cubes to kind of freeze your skin because that has a similar effect. And none of those worked for me. Ultimately, it's like anything else. If you start to feel a little more 
self-respect and a little more compassion for yourself, you're not going to want to carve chunks of flesh out of your arms. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's doing things that will help you kind of feel a little more valuable, I guess. So far, like, I, I just haven't heard anyone talk publicly about self-harm. Mm. It's like such a huge taboo, it's isn't it? It's a big it? taboo and it's very misunderstood. And, and when people see scars, they always overreact. They always get angry or they appear to get angry and, and they react in the worst possible way. If you want to help someone who's self-harming, you can't do that. Mm. It drives them further into themselves. And, and it's terribly sad that there are untold millions of us trapped in this kind of awful silent head down no eye contact self-imposed prison where Mm. there is no one to talk to and there is seemingly no way out and we have to do more in this country in so many ways but you know mental health has to be Mm. up there at the top of the agenda it just has to be because i think we are all slightly crazy and well, it's a spectrum, isn't it? It's a bit it like is. physical health goes from, say, the, the common cold through to cancer yeah. and beyond. And the same as mental health. The big difference with physical health is you can call your boss tomorrow and say, I've got the flu, I can't come in. And he'll say, no problem. If you call him and say, I'm so anxious, I can't even get out of bed, mm. you won't have a job. So that, I mean, again, it needs to be taken. I would love it to be treated the same way as physical health. Mm. Both the resources allocated to it, but also the the taboo and the stigma around it to be lessened. And that's why people like you are so important. I don't know. I think we just need to talk more and, I mean, and talking talk more honestly as well. Because I imagine writing about this stuff is not easy. It's mm. not enjoyable. Like I, you know that question people. I don't know. I get asked it a lot. Is it cathartic? No, bullshit, and I'm like, it's, it's cathartic. It's awful. horrible. Because also writing is such a solitary thing as well. And you're like, oh great, I'm yeah. going to spend six weeks sitting alone at my kitchen table writing yeah. about these depressing things. But it's very exposing. Mm. There's so much shame involved. The worst thing for me is when I'm on stage doing book events where people are reading extracts from the book and I'm there and it's kind of out of context and it's that feeling of just wanting to be invisible. Even though rationally I know I've done nothing wrong, I don't care how smart or how strong you are. If you're six years old and there's a 40-year-old man who's like five times your size alone in a locked room with you wanting to fuck you, you know who's going to win. And if he tells you repeatedly that you know you cannot imagine the rain of shit that will come down on you if you even hint that something untoward is happening it's really really toxic you know what it's almost worse than the actual physical act itself because they all say the same thing pedophiles which is you can't talk about it mm-hmm. and then the next day you're with your abuser in front of them and there are other people present and you pretend everything's normal because you have to you smile and you shake their hands and you say yes sir or yes dad or yes uncle whoever and what happens when you do that is that you become complicit you're protecting them Mm -hmm. you become like partners in crime like you both rub the bank together you're protecting each other and when you're six years old or young or you see it the same in in rape victims it's Mm -hmm. why it's so often unreported is that you blame yourself and you feel that to a certain extent this is on me and when you're, especially when you're young and the brain is still plastic, mm. you know, the wiring isn't quite done, it changes the wiring in your brain. So at a cellular level, there is no doubt in my mind that I am to some extent to blame for this. And with that comes a, an unbelievable amount of shame. Should have done something. I mean, I remember telling someone when I was much, much older, in my mid-30s, a woman who'd known me all my life, and I said, you know, this happened when I was a kid, and literally the first thing out of her mouth was oh, well, James, you were the most beautiful child. I mean, can you imagine? And that 
now that doesn't surprise me but it's like as if she's saying well yeah of course i mean and <laughs> what the fuck i always promised myself i would talk about this stuff not to get attention or, or the whole victim routine but because if you're strong enough to do it i think we have a responsibility to do it mm. i think we have to when sentences being handed down for raping children are so risible and so mm. pathetic you know we don't have mandatory reporting in this country I don't know if you know what that is, but if, if you're listening to this, you won't believe me when I tell you this, but I swear to God it's true, and you can Google it, and you will weep in frustration when you do and realize that it is true. But if a teacher or any member of staff in any clerical setting in this country, for example, a teacher walks into a classroom and sees another teacher raping a seven-year-old boy, she can close the door, walk out, not say a word to anyone, and she won't have committed any crime or broken any laws. Can you believe that? Does she not have a duty? She has no duty of whatsoever to report it. And if she does report it, she has no legal protection against being fired like a whistleblower would have. We're one of the only countries in the world that don't have that. Until things like that change, until someone rapes a seven-year-old and they're put in prison for life like they should be, until a teacher witnesses it and is given the full support of the school and counsellors and the police and the criminal justice system in making sure the person she's witnessed doing this is brought to justice... We have to keep talking until we stop using words like molested Mm. or abused. Abuse is when you tell a parking warden to fuck off. It's (laughs) not when you force your dick inside a six-year-old. I mean, that's, you know, violent rape. Mm. And yet we soften it and we make excuses. Do you think in part it's because calling it molesting or abuse is... We don't want to see what we do to it. We don't want to acknowledge it. Don't want to admit it exists. I have had three operations on my back and I have two titanium rods in my spine because he literally shattered the base of my spine by fucking me so hard for so long. But I mean, I know that's quite graphic, but it's the truth. L5S1, it's just fused together. They had to fuse my spine because it broke. That's not... We don't want to acknowledge that a human being can do that to another human being. So did that happen when you were a small child and while the abuse was still going on? And then did you... It happened about two or three years afterwards. The damage had been done and it had weakened it to such an extent that eventually it just, it collapsed. And again, the doctors had no clue. It never occurred to them that this was why. What did you... What did you... They had people examining it in boardrooms and x-rays around the world because they hadn't seen anything. They didn't know what it was. They thought maybe it was something doing sports or maybe I, I had a really bad flu. They thought maybe I'd coughed and it had happened. And and I remember, and I'll always remember this because to me it was just like heaven. I remember having the first operation. I was so young and the anaesthetist said, you know, like they say count backwards from 10 before you go under. And I remember looking her right in the eyes and just saying to her, I've been waiting for this moment all my life because I knew that in about three seconds I was going to be completely yeah. unconscious which is still today one of the greatest things you could ever that could ever happen to me, is to be completely just checked out. And when I came round, she'd had a psych consult, because she said, look, no one's ever said that to me, let alone a fucking kid. What's wrong? And I was like, no, nothing. I, I don't know what you're talking about. I just wanted a nice long sleep. And so they tried to repair it, and it didn't work. And then they tried again, and then eventually they said, we've done two laminectomies. We have to fuse it now, because otherwise it's just, it's so damaged. You know, there's still, it's like a, it's like a hand grenade's gone off down there. I still, I, sh- I need to have stuff done, but I just can't face the thought of getting all the tendons and lig- everything all kind of fixed. I just don't want anyone to touch it anymore. But, you know, things like that, I mean, this is, we're kind of straying off topic, I guess. No, well, but, I ju- but you know what, James? 
thank you for straying off topic because it's it's really but you, we have to see the reality of it yeah i think that's the thing we talk about abuse we talk about children being raped we talk about jimmy savile we don't talk about kids like me who are in locked bathroom cubicles wiping bits of blood and shit off their thighs so they can go back to school and not get into trouble because their uniform's dirty we don't talk about the actual reality of it because we don't you know and it's taken me over 30 years to be able to talk about that it's, it's a hard thing to talk about and i'm not for one minute suggesting that people who've gone through similar things need to go public with it mm. because i tell you what it's not it, it comes at a real cost to me it's a price worth paying but you have to be strong enough to do that but what i would say is you have to talk to someone it really is a case of talk or die you you can't outrun things like this mm. you just can't because it catches up with you Childline are amazing. The Samaritans are mm. amazing. Uh, there's a place, I think it's the Maytree Clinic, where if you just want to die, they will take you in for free. No questions asked for a night or two or three up in North London. Look after oh, Yeah, they're amazing. There's so many organisations we'll you can we'll, talk to. We'll do a list online. Please, please, please. Yeah. Survivors UK for mm. male survivors of abuse are also fantastic. Yeah. And again, all of these organisations, you would think they would be swimming in money because the government would want to help. No, they are begging for scraps so that they can keep open and help save people's lives. If you're listening to this and um, you need help from any of those organisations, if you go online to telegraph.co.uk forward slash changing minds, we'll make sure it's signposted clearly. Thank you. There's also a bunch there. of charities and links on my website. Which you is jamesroads.tv. So, except very good, jamesroads.tv. But <laughs> we had so many emails saying where can I get help I've had messages from people who literally you know I'm in my 70s this happened to me 60 years ago and I read your book and I made my first appointment with a therapist as a result and you think living with this without talking about it for 60 can you imagine um, the damage that it does the relationships it destroyed the quality of life you're not living you're existing it's terrible backed into this kind of terrible silent dark corner so I think we need to talk and this does come under the topic of mental illness because it's not just those of us who have been through sexual trauma all of us have gone through trauma whether it's your dog dying your parents divorcing or witnessing domestic abuse or being beaten or being bullied or take your pick there's so much of it it's part of the human condition and yet we never address it no we just Um, don't when you said that thing about the doctor putting you under then when you were in your sort of late teens early 20s the sort of drugs and alcohol were obviously a natural... No, that was much earlier than that. Really? I was drinking and doing drugs from, from about 9 or 10. I was in my first psychiatric ward at 19, and that was when I stopped drinking and using drugs, illegal drugs. So all of my using was between kind of 4 or 5 years old and 19 wow. years old. Again, I mean, you know, you don't need drink or drugs to punish yourself. No. You can, you know, put yourself in very dangerous sexual situations. You can pull your own hair out. You can get into fights. You can cross the road without looking. I mean, any number of things that you mm. can do because you just don't care if you live or die. It's not even that you're suicidal. You're just indifferent. Mm. It's like, I, I don't care. If I die, great, I'd welcome it. If I'm alive, you know, fair enough. It's that I just don't care about myself. And I think that's disturbingly common. 
Mm-hmm. And we don't talk about that. We don't talk about it because when you talk about it, we feel like a freak. We still use, you know, the phrase committing suicide mm. really upsets me. It's like, it's a crime. And of course, it was a crime. It was a crime until 1961. It's like when people talk about he admitted to being gay. I mean, what the mm. fuck? I went nuts with someone. I think it was a language thing because it was a different language interview. And he said, you know, you confessed to being raped as a child. I was like, I'm sorry. I didn't fucking confess to anything. No, the person that needed Con- to confess. Confession implies I've done something wrong. Fuck you. We have to be so careful with the words we yeah, use. Yeah, we really do. And also, then you get the people that come back and go, oh, we're all such snowflakes nowadays. And you think, no, actually, it's just a case of being careful and considerate to and other you know, people's those feelings. people underneath all of that, I understand where they're coming from because if they weren't to be like that, the amount of pain they would have to confront and deal mm. with is so stratospheric that maybe they wouldn't even be able to live with it. So, I mean, it's all a defence mechanism, isn't it? It's a really you good see way of people, looking at it. You see people on Twitter just <laughs> going... I mean, I've had people say, you know, die of fucking cancer. Or I've had people say, what do you mean you've got a girlfriend? You obviously like cock because you were raped as a kid. <gasps> and you just think, well, I mean, A, never engage, but B, it's terribly sad that we've become that hardened as a species. We have to start looking for the small, quietly heroic moments that... 5am cups of tea when you can't sleep and the whole world is asleep and it's quiet and the sun's just starting to come up or the song on the radio you hear and you just stop moving for a couple of minutes and feel something safe or the look from a stranger on the tube who smiles at you in a nice way or these little moments I think that's what it's all about. Your description of insomnia in the book, I really resonated. Complete insanity. It feels like you're going insane, doesn't it? You do. You go complete. And then you you fall over the edge into that slightly, well, not slightly, extremely surreal frame of mind where everything seems to be happening in slow motion. Everything's slightly wobbly and you're moving through quicksand. And that reminds me of that. I can't remember. There was someone, a guy who had triplets. And you wrote a book about it. And I think the book was called I Sleep at Red Lights. <laughs> and it's just you're so tired, a light turns red and you go, oh, I've got 20 seconds. Here we go. <laughs> you're just out and you'll take anything you can get. And, but imagine having that level of insomnia, being that tired and then walking on stage in front of two and a half thousand people who've paid 50 fucking euros to come and see you play mm-hmm. and you're all on your own and you're playing 150,000 notes from memory and <laughs> you know, the press are there. And so you, do, you sort of write about taking beta blockers. Yeah, I take that to deal with the physical symptoms. It doesn't do anything mentally, but it stops the hand shaking, the palms sweating, the, the dry mouth. I tell you what, try playing the piano with your hands shaking and your feet shaking. Yeah. It's, it's impossible. So I take a small dose of propanolol, which just stops the adrenaline overtaking the, the system. What do you do for the mental stuff? Nothing. You just play? I try and move towards it rather than push it away. You know what, when I play, it goes. When it's not about me, <laughs> it gets easier. Well, the best concerts are the ones where I'm saying, holy shit, listen to what Chopin wrote when he was out of his mind with grief and his heart was broken, rather than, hey, listen to me play this amazing piece. It's about, God, just listen to this shit. It's extraordinary, and I guess it's like life. When I move out of the way, things get a bit easier, but I'm a really, I'm a narcissistic asshole, and I like everything to be about me, but I'm, I'm learning that actually life's much easier when, when it isn't. Doesn't everyone think that life's about them? Maybe. Who knows? I, I mean, probably... I mean, you'd think it looking at social media and, and Instagram yeah. and everything. Oh, my God, I saw a fucking book of... Um, 
I think it was one of the Kardashians, and it was a book purely of her selfies. The best thing was it was a second edition, and there was a gold sticker on the book saying, now with more me. <laughs> and I was like, fuck, this is the bumper sticker for the generation. Now with more, more me. me. And I just, I swear to God, I would rather shit in my hands and clap than read a book like that. I just, oh, it made me want to die. So, I, love- I don't know. Look, I'm not pessimistic. I think there's a lot of good stuff out there. There's a lot of kindness. I mean, yes, sometimes people mistake kindness for weakness. But ultimately, kindness is the most undervalued and one of the rarest commodities out there. And it's the most important thing. What makes you hopeful? The kindness that's on display, the quiet acts of heroism, the fact that I have this wonderful life where I'm doing all the things that... I've always wanted to do. My life is submerged with music. I get to meet wonderful people. I have this lovely, kind, gentle, warm, beautiful girlfriend. I have a warm apartment in Madrid. You live in Madrid? With a Steinway piano. Shut the front door. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And again, you know, on a bad day, none of that makes any difference at all. Of course. But, you know, these are great things. There's a lot that makes me hopeful. I think they're tremendous advances happening in the fields of mental health there needs to be a lot more the same with music education the same with things that i think are a lot more important than raising another generation of bankers who are going to burn out at 35 and just go off their face on cocaine but Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know i think government needs to do more and we need to do more as individuals to stop feeling so alone there's so much that's pushing us apart why can't we just be a little more honest and when people say how are you doing we just tell the truth we just say, you know, I'm having a shit day. Because you talk so much in the book about the pretending, the having to pretend the whole time. It's exhausting. Which is why I thought you wouldn't struggle with the how are you question. And that doesn't mean that, you know, if a total stranger being polite says, how are you doing? You say, well, let me tell you. <laughs> you know, just because I'm not happy does not mean that I'm unhappy. Mm-hmm. There's a whole massive, infinite spectrum between being not happy and being unhappy. Most of my life is inhabited in that spectrum at some point. And sometimes it's just okay. You know, when my kid was born, I was obsessed with being the perfect dad, like all parents are. And I read this book, and there was a guy called Winnicott, and he talks mm-hmm. about the good enough parent. And that this is a technical term now, he coined it. And I loved that idea. He was like, you'll never be a perfect parent. You'll never be a brilliant parent. The thing to strive to be is a good enough parent. And I think, you know what? I want to be a good enough human being. That's Mm -hmm. enough. I want to be a good enough musician. I want to be a good enough boyfriend. I want to be a good enough father. And I think part of being a good enough human being is actually realizing that we're all united and we're all connected. And we should embrace that rather than pretending we're better or worse than other people. We should just realize we're all here. We all want the same things, ultimately. Mm. A little bit of peace, a little bit of happiness. Maybe a bit of sex, a bit of money, a few smiles. And <laughs> and th- that's a lovely thing. It's a lovely, lovely outlook on life, I think. James, I found you incredibly moving and powerful. I just, I want to talk about, we'll kind of wrap up soon, but I want to talk about music, really, mm, just please. a little bit more and how integral it is to you. In the book, you talk about music is, you know, we're born with two languages that mm. we've learned and music is one of them. Mm. And, I mean, you've spoken before about how it was just always there for you. 
What is that experience of sitting in a piano and playing something by Chopin or how does it transform you? How does it make you feel? How can you talk? Sorry, there's like many questions in one. No, I understand exactly what you're asking. But how can you also, classical music, I always think lots of people go, whoa, I don't even know where to start or what I'm looking at. And and then, oh, I There's so many questions. Look, classical music is like that for a good reason. The classical music industry is filled with some of the most awful people in the world. (laughs) I mean, they're really genuinely awful, awful people. They're manipulative, deceptive, fraudulent, doing anything for money. They're snobbish. They want to keep it as this elevated art form for people who went to Oxbridge who can tie a Windsor fucking knot and are happy to shell out 80 quid on a fucking ticket to end up in the Barbican at 10.30 at night having not eaten. And, I mean, it drives me crazy. Even if you want to start with classical music and you think, okay, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, I know that one. You go on Spotify or iTunes, they're 400 fucking recordings with the most awful album covers. And you look at it and you go, hang on, wait, Allegro, Adagio, Scherz, is it one mo- What's a movement? Is it one track or four tracks? And, and you end up buying the 50 best chill-out classics ever, which just makes me want to blow my fucking brains out. So it's hard to get into. There are all of these unwritten rules. What I would say, and this is not a plug because it's free, there's a Spotify playlist that I put together with Instrumental, my memoir. So if you just Google Instrumental Spotify James Rhodes, it'll come up. And on that list are... 2025 of the greatest pieces of music ever composed from Bach all the way through to Prokofiev and everything in between fucking amazing like a springboard it's like a gateway drug to classical music so there are a lot of barriers to entry with classical but this is a way to find out a little bit more about what you like and it will open doors for you and maybe you'll hate Chopin but you'll really really love Brahms or you'll discover new things as far as what music does this is not unique to me the magic trick is it doesn't matter if I'm playing it or I'm listening to it. It doesn't matter if it's classical music or if it's hip-hop or rap. It makes no difference at all. It has the same impact. And what it reminds me of is when my kid was three years old, I took him to the O2 Center, not the, the arena, the shopping mall up on Finchley Road by mm-hmm. Swiss Cottage. And we parked the car and we got out. And by the car park, there's a tube track, a tube line, an overground and a train started coming along, pulling into the station, and he'd never seen a train before. And he'd seen it on TV, he'd seen Thomas the Tank Engine, but this was the first real train. And I'll never forget, he stood there and he saw it, and he was so overcome with joy, he literally couldn't process it. He just stood stock still, frozen, kind of shaking. His eyes got bigger and bigger, and that, to me, is the impact music had on me as a kid and continues to have every day, and it's the one consistent thing that has never let me down. And I'm not unique in that. We listen to music when we're jogging. We listen to music Mm -hmm. when we're trying to seduce our girlfriend. We listen to music when we've broken up with our girlfriend and we want to have a good cry. We listen to music when we want to concentrate, when we want to fall asleep. A life without music would be inconceivable. So you don't need to play an instrument. You don't need to light the opera. You don't need to sit in the fucking Wigmore Hall listening to octogenarians talking about sonata form in Beethoven's fucking Vienna. You can just listen to a bit of Spotify, close your eyes, and just for five minutes disappear from this world and experience something magical and that's a great thing to do in in this day and age that seems like a perfect way to end go now to spotify and look for james's playlist instrumental instrumental playlist james thank you so much you've been incredible thank you for having me I'm trying to process all of everything I've just heard. I think that's going to be really powerful for a hell of a lot of people. 
I hope so. I, I hope if it's true, I mean, you know, we have that word trigger, which also is a tricky word, but undoubtedly a lot of these topics, especially if you have had anything similar happen mm-hmm. to you, will be incredibly triggering. And if it helps, and it might not, but please know that you're not alone, that there are people you can speak to, there are people you can write to, you can do it anonymously, that you don't have to go through this alone. And there are people who, believe it or not, and I promise you this is true, <laughs> who really, really, really understand even if it's just a handful of us we do understand you're not some lonely freak who's kind of isolated who's destined to a life of just feeling like an alien many of us have been through similar things and we have come out the other side even if it's only contingent on being very very careful every day you can maintain that and you can grow into something really quite lovely with it i think If you've been affected by anything we've talked about in our podcast today, a comprehensive list of mental health services is available on our website, which is www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash madworld. If you want help right now, the following organisations offer free and confidential support over the phone. The Samaritans can be reached 24 hours a day, seven days a week on 116123. Or you can contact the mental health charity Mind for advice on a range of mental health issues. Their phone number is 0300-123-3393. That's 0300-123-3393. And they're accessible 9am to 5pm, Monday to Friday, excluding bank holidays. Finally, there's Young Minds, who provide support if you're a parent or a carer worried about a child's welfare. They're on 0808. 802-5544. That's 0808-802-5544. And remember this, you are not alone. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 